Sometimes I'll receive a text from my friend Grace that says, Alex, what is my favorite movie? This is not sudden amnesia, and like pop quizzes aren't really a recurring theme in our friendship. If I'm receiving this text, it's usually because Grace has had a glass of wine and told someone what her favorite movie is, and they've said, wait, really? This is because Grace is very smart. She has a PhD, she works at a university and writes about film, and is generally someone who people think would have, like, smart and correct opinions on film. You can't see me, I'm doing little air quotes around the smart and correct. (laughs) My job in this scenario is to confirm via text message that Grace's favourite film in the entire world is Princess Diaries 2, colon, Royal Engagement, starring Anne Hathaway and Chris Pine thus proving that this is not some terrible secret that Grace is hiding. In fact, she will deliver lengthy monologues about the joys of this movie if prompted. Sometimes she'll do it unprompted. People don't think that this is like a smart or correct opinion to have on this film, and will frequently attempt to dispute that it could possibly be Grace's favourite because it is not good with a capital G. Like Grace, many of my favourite films are not things that people think are good films necessarily. They're often surprised when I, like, loudly declare things with the structural integrity of a cooked noodle to be the greatest film ever made. I mentioned a couple of times in recent podcasts that I've been struggling to concentrate on various pieces of media. Uh, It's a combination of things, probably. Uh, A pandemic is happening. Um, The world's on fire in so many ways, uh, sometimes literally. And I just have a general depressive streak. (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to challenge myself this week to think about something joyful. Just something cinematic that makes me happy without it being too deep of a dive necessarily. And while I have struggled to watch anything new recently, one of the things that I always return to is action movies. The bigger the budget, the more tenuous the plot, the better. I'm talking huge explosions, inexplicable destruction of entire cities with no apparent consequences, and big hulking muscle boys ready to bring us all back from the brink of death. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about the joy of action films. When I was uh, planning out this episode, I did think that I might try and write about my favourite movie, but then I thought about it some more and I realised that my favourite movies off the top of my head are Magic Mike XXL, which I have already made an entire episode on and like realistically could probably make another episode on, Uh, but I'll spare you. Go and check the other one out. It's episode seven, I think. Uh, And Coffee and Cigarettes by Jim Jarmusch, which, like all Jim Jarmusch movies, is a film in which many very famous people converge and very little happens, but it looks great. I couldn't tell you why I love it, but I do. But also, as a film, it, like, doesn't necessarily bring me joy in the way that I want to think about today. See, I think going to the movies is maybe my favourite thing in the entire world. In fact, pandemic-wise, it's probably one of the things that I'm most upset about not having been able to do for months on end. I love to sit in the dark with a Coke the size of my face and stare at all of the beautiful faces made huge. My tolerance for bad movies is astronomical. I've never walked out of a film, even when it's been incomprehensibly bad. And because of this, I've seen a lot of big-budget Hollywood garbage. 
Things where you look at it and you're like, who pitched this and why? The movies that fall into this category are usually action films. Something about action as a genre attracts films where it seems like the writer just had a very specific vision of a buff guy walking through a huge explosion in slow motion with like a gun slung over his shoulder and then worked backwards from there to build out an actual plot. Here's the thing though. I love those movies. (laughs) More often than not, I will exit a terrible action film, turn to Grace, who, aside from loving The Princess Diaries, is also my partner in cinematic crime, and say, that was the best thing I've ever seen, and I want to think about it every day for a week. And I mean it when I say it. I am so full of joy in that moment that I will genuinely want to think about slow-motion action man with explosions every day for a week. So I thought for today's podcast, in the interests of forcing myself to experience joy, even when I'm struggling to, I could explain to you what I think makes an excellent action movie, give you some primo examples, and have a little bit of a think about why we should let ourselves find happiness in average movies. People have a lot of opinions on what makes a good action movie. Uh, This includes things like well-developed heroes and villains, a cohesive plot, and compelling motivations. And sure, those things are great and all, but it might not surprise you to learn that I think a lot of those opinions are flawed. When we look at film criticism as a whole, we understand that the people writing reviews are holding that movie to a particular standard. While there's some adjusting to be done for personal preference and sometimes for genre, Highbrow film criticism is also looking at these films through a lens of cinematic canon, an established set of rules for what makes a film good. And when you look at genre pieces that are critically successful, it's often because the critics feel that those movies have somehow managed to successfully throw off the shackles of their genre to become like more universal and therefore better. And that's all well and good, but you know what shit gets me absolutely out of my chair hooting and hollering with anticipation? Knife Museum. What am I on about? You heard me. Knife Museum. Alright, I realize like I sound like my brain has gone offline completely. Allow me to elaborate. In the third John Wick movie, Keanu Reeves is once again on the run from a shadowy underworld of assassins after someone puts a hit out on him for breaking the never fully elaborated on assassin rules. At one point, while already wounded and fleeing from several guys with martial arts skills, he runs into a shop front and up the stairs. Keanu and Party crash around the corner like brawling all the way, only to stand up and realize that they are in a museum display full of antique knives of various sizes. There is a brief pause as they make eye contact before everyone starts frantically smashing their elbows through the glass cases to grab at ornate knives and, like, hurl them artlessly at each other. It is maybe the best thing I've ever seen. I threw my hands up in the air like I was experiencing rapture and whispered loudly, Knife Museum, when I saw it in the cinema. I'm, like, getting a little bit emotional thinking about it now. Knife Museum. Now, I bring this up not because John Wick 3 Parabellum was critically panned. It wasn't. Critics have actually been surprisingly kind to the franchise as a whole. I'm bringing it up because it's an exceptional example of one of the things that I think elevates an action movie from good to great. 
The movie has to have a sense of place, and in order for it to elicit maximum joy, that sense of place has to be just ever so slightly improbable, bordering on stupid. Do we live in a world where knife museums exist? I've googled it, and the answer is yes. Uh, The top Google result is the Smoky Mountain Knife Works and National Knife Museum in Tennessee, in case you were wondering. Is the knife museum likely to appear just when we need it because we've got a shoulder wound and our martial arts skills are running low? No. Unless there's something about Tennessee and quantum physics that I'm, I'm missing, which is entirely possible. I don't know much about either of those things. But it feels very right in the context of this movie, and very silly the second you think about it even, like, a little bit. Which is exactly the point. But Alex, I hear you say, isn't John Wick set in a quasi-fantasy universe? Don't all quasi-fantasy universes have to have some sort of altered sense of reality in order to make them functional at all? You are correct, but this logic also applies to action movies that are supposed to be set in reality. Let's think about something else I love for a hot second. Let's think about The Fast and the Furious. This is a movie set in contemporary California. Nothing fantastical about it. No bent rules that let assassins throw each other through a million mirrors with no consequence. Just sunny California, and it's conveniently totally fine, mostly ignored by the cops, illegal street race scene, which is populated by beautiful women in bikinis, large wads of cash, and culminates in one final illegal drag race event in the desert called Race Wars. Now, (laughs) we don't have time to unpack all of that, but attention is drawn to the scene when guys in cars start robbing trucks while they're in motion. Suffice to say, in this universe, Los Angeles, one of the most congested cities in the world, with traffic jams so infamous that they regularly go viral, has ample room for cars to just burn around, bothering no one, unpursued by police, and plenty of space to perform multi-vehicle takedowns of trucks in order to steal DVD players, because it is still 2001. (laughs) Now, no traffic jams is not quite as good as Knife Museum, that much is obvious, but it has the same effect. Does Los Angeles have an illegal street racing scene? Yeah, it does. How does that work with the traffic? Not very well. (laughs) Over 179 people have died, usually as a result of colliding with other vehicles. The ability to perform an in-motion truck heist in the middle of Los Angeles at like 9.30 at night is improbable, bordering on stupid, but it does induce maximum joy. Like John Wick, it points to a space in which action, crime, justice, and retribution can exist sort of separate from the actual places the film inhabits. It's like this seedy underworld the tabloid news always refers to actually exists, but sort of harmlessly alongside reality. I realize that this sounds like I am just describing the most basic tools of narrative cinema used to assist you in suspending your disbelief. And leaving aside the fact that you don't get the same thing happening in other genres, there's not like a whole separate world where love exists just so Notting Hill can happen. I'm bringing this up because it brings me to the next action movie inclusion that is geared for maximum joy. A bunch of guys have to inhabit this world. Not just any guys, though. A very specific set of guys. Basically, the second you deviate slightly from reality, you lose all the nuance of actual people existing. You can't just have your barista, your accountant, and the dude who washes the dishes at the local Chinese restaurant and have them 
all go home at the end of the day to their roommates or families. No, suddenly you need guys. Between two and seven, ideally five. Five is the magic number for many things, uh, but I find it specifically to be the case for boy bands and action movies. It's the perfect ratio of person in charge to people that they have to supervise that allows for something to be pulled off, but with just like a little bit of chaos. Anyway, theoretically, these guys could be a barista, an accountant, or a dishwasher at the Chinese restaurant, but they are those things for this new world. This means that they will have a specific set of skills that will be vital to the new reality that they inhabit. The barista has to simultaneously be an expert in making coffee and poisons. The accountant's such a numbers guy that he's banned from every Vegas casino. The dishwasher was rumoured to have thrown a knife through the eye of a would-be assailant with uncanny accuracy. There are no small people in these worlds, and no lucky shots. Everyone is ready for action at all times, but our band of guys has to be the most ready for action. And for maximum joy, they have to love each other a little bit. It doesn't even have to be gay, although this is obviously ideal. But you have to be secure in the knowledge that these guys would die for each other. Like if someone shot at them, it would be a race to jump in front of each other's bullets. I was going to use Ocean's Eleven as my example here, because the sexual tension between a sharply dressed George Clooney as the leader and Brad Pitt is a second-in-command, complete with oral fixation that means George Clooney is constantly watching him fiddle with his mouth, is maybe Team of Guys cinema at its peak. But the film itself is too good, and not enough things explode. So instead, take as an example the 2010 film The Losers. <laughs> a ragtag team of five military guys is betrayed by their handler, resulting in them being framed for a helicopter crash that kills a bunch of kidnapped schoolchildren. They have to find their way back to their real lives and clear their name. Many explosions happen. It is the perfect example. Um, I've rewatched this film approximately 9,000 times, but the thing that it does best, and the thing that I will always love it for, is the clear and unwavering definition of each of its guys. See, the key to the perfect set of action movie heroes is that they all serve a purpose within the film. And Losers does this in my absolute favourite way. Freeze frames and captioning. <laughs> We're introduced to the team in the middle of a game of Blind Man's Bluff, where each player is pulling increasingly large weapons from their person to be placed into the betting pool. The camera swoops around in a circle, and as they say a funny thing, it freezes on each guy. Their name pops up on the screen, along with their role in the group beneath it. Jensen, Cougar, Pooch, and Roke appear on the screen with roles like long-range eliminations and heavy weps and transpo. It is a delightfully meaningless word salad, but the fact that it is intercut with scraps of dialogue points to their broader group dynamic. You see, for the perfect soothing action movie cocktail, each of the guys has to serve a specific purpose within the group. This is to achieve harmony and also to ensure the fact that they love each other is obvious. Jensen making a silly sex joke and referring to Cougar as Coogs, which gets him a smile and a wink, sets them up as the comic relief and the silent comedic foil. Pooch arguing earnestly that he's never cheated at cards sets him up as the reliable straight man. Roke producing large knife after large knife from his pants and glaring dangerously at Jensen as he makes more jokes establishes him as the second in command. 
When Clay finally emerges from the bushes and tells them to get moving, it's clear that he's the leader. These archetypes keep everything steady. A leader knows everything about everyone, but especially about their second-in-command. The Joker and their foil keeps the tone from being too self-serious. A straight man gives you someone to root for. But most importantly, it points to a kind of intimacy. They're familiar and jokey, and that's how you know that they absolutely would pile on top of each other like a stack of pancakes to protect each other from rogue bullets. You might have noticed from my Magic Mike episode that actually the thing I love most in the world is when a group of men are nice to each other. Uh, only in the movies. I don't, I don't care about it in real life. But um, to me, the key to the team of guys is actually just that they love each other. And in my honest opinion, the best way to show that is a freeze frame on each member's face and a little caption. You cannot change my mind. <laughs> Anyway, what was the point of me sharing my theories on the perfect action movie with you? Look, the movies I've mentioned here and a lot of action movies that I continue to come back to are not what you would call good films. Some of them are critical failures and commercial successes. Some of them were just failures. <laughs> and that's fine because they have tropes I enjoy or like a particular goofiness that resonates with me. And I think acknowledging where you find joy in cinema with your friends, uh, or in this case, a podcast audience, hello, um, is actually kind of nice because it lets watching movies become a shared experience. I know, for example, that Grace loves romance plots with a very specific type of dramatic tension and will also ask what is happening during almost all sci-fi movies involving some complex in-world subterfuge because she lost interest four badly written double bluffs ago. Grace knows that I love a found family, preferably a found family that has to live outside the law, and hate almost anything where the whole plot is some doomed romance but nothing else happens. We will both also whisper scream, the title of the movie, whenever someone says the title of the movie in the film. These are not things that are about the movies themselves or their perceived cultural worth. Sometimes it's just about fun and sharing. Art doesn't have to be good for it to mean something to you. Life is hard enough. Sometimes you just take your joy from explosions. Or like, I don't know, whatever your version of that is. Uh, so that's it. The nice part about writing this episode was calling Grace and being like, you know how I love a group of guys? And she was like, yeah, obviously, you love it when a group of guys are little friends in a movie. And then she just started listing movies that I loved where that was the case. Um, anyway, cinema is good and friendship is better. Please tell me about your favorite movie things next time you see me at the pub. Peace. Peace.